Well, good evening. This evening we find ourselves in Job chapter 32. You can turn there with me in your Bibles. We've now reached another section. This is actually the second part of this book. We went through an introduction, chapters 1 and 2, and then we had the great debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And now we're introduced to another character who hasn't come up yet, but apparently has been listening to this entire debate. As we've gone through it, he's heard all that we've heard, and he now begins to speak. His name is Elihu, and he's a younger man, and uh, he has felt the need to be silent because of his age and listen, but you'll see that he has these four speeches. We're only going to look at two this evening, but his two speeches that we're going to look at this evening and even into next uh, actually, two weeks from now, when we'll go through the other speeches, we're going to see that all of it is, is really about defending God. He feels very strongly that, differently than the friends of Job, because you see, Job's friends, they came to the conclusion, for different reasons, that Job had sinned and therefore was suffering, that God was afflicting him as punishment for his sin, and that if he wanted to be restored, he needed to repent. But Elohu's a little different. He doesn't agree with Job's friends. He also doesn't agree with Job. He feels, and, and in some regard, he is correct. He really is. Because he feels that God has a purpose in suffering. He's almost the narrator voice here. Some people even believe he was the one that wrote the book. He's not introduced until this point in the book in the second part of this book, and he's not mentioned at the end of the book when God rebukes Job's three friends. It's not to say that everything Elihu says is necessarily correct in this instance, but he knows that you really can't question God. And in fact, he defends God because he doesn't believe it's right to question God. Even if you're suffering, you should accept that at God's hands as part of his plan. In that regard, there's a great deal of truth to what Elihu is going to say. Where he might not understand all of the facts is that he doesn't know, well, actually, we don't know, why God allowed Satan to afflict Job. So Elihu doesn't know, we don't know, and in fact, by the time we get to the end of the book, we just still don't know why. And the, the point of Elihu, as we'll see in his four speeches, is simply this. God has a purpose. There is a purpose in affliction. And even if the purpose is simply to keep you on the straight and narrow from committing a greater sin or possibly to simply prepare you and make you the right kind of person, you should embrace suffering. Now, that's very easy to say if you're Elihu and not Job. It's a lot harder to say that if you're Job, isn't it? If you're the one suffering, coming to that conclusion isn't so easy, especially when, like Job, you have your integrity and you know that you haven't done anything wrong. So keep in mind, the perspective is that of someone looking from the outside in. And in that regard, it's a, little, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little less empathetic than maybe someone should be under the circumstances that Job finds himself in. But just the same, he's a little bit closer to the mark than Job's three friends. And with that, let's open in a word of prayer. And we'll look first at uh, the first speech of Elihu, which is in chapters 32 and 33. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to understand that truth. For it is true, you do have a purpose in affliction. We may not always know. In fact, oftentimes we will not know why we suffer or go through difficulties. Job never really got a straight answer. 
But we know that you do work through these things. You have a purpose. You would not have allowed Satan to afflict Job if there wasn't a purpose. Whatever that purpose was, and however you may work in our lives, help us to accept the things we can't change. To accept the trials and the difficulties of life, knowing that there's a better life for us in eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at the introduction here. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. So these three men, and of course that's Job's three friends. We have uh, Zophar, right, Bildad, and Eliphaz. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Now that's true. He was justifying himself rather than God. He wasn't cursing God, but he seemed to feel that God was being unfair with him. He's made that much clear. He was also, that is, Elihu was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job. They never, in all their talking and all their speeches, never convinced Job of anything but what he already started from the beginning believing, that he was being unjustly afflicted. Uh, notice it says, he was also, in verse 3, he was also angry with his with the three friends, because they had found a way to refute Job, and yet had condemned him. Now, that could also be translated, not just condemn Job, but possibly even had condemned God. So, in other words, the idea is this. They hadn't changed Job's mind, and in the process had done nothing to defend God. So this man feels that the important thing is that people stand up for God and his righteousness and not accuse God of injustice. Okay? And in that regard, he's correct. Now, Elihu had waited before speaking, we read in verse 4, to Job because they were older than he, but when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. And so Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzzite, said, I am young in years, and you are old, and that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. And so he's introduced himself here at this point, very angry after listening to Job and his three friends. And maybe as we've gone through this study, you may have found yourself not so much angry with Job, maybe angry with his three friends, But maybe you have found yourself saying, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of pontificating. There's a lot of opining about the things of God and the things of men. And with all this talking, no one seems to have come to any conclusion. Isn't that very true? There's a lot of talking. Men and women, we do a lot of talking. But at the end of the day, do we really understand God? Can we really explain what God does or why? Uh, this is why the older I get, the more I, I'm content to just say, who knows? I trust God. Who knows why? Why isn't that important? Who is a whole lot more important to me as I get older? Who is working, not why is God working in a particular way? If I trust God's nature and his character, then what he's doing or why he's doing it are secondary to who is the one working on my behalf. And so... <clears throat> He felt the need to come to God's defense, and he felt as a younger man that it was inappropriate for him to speak until this moment. And he says so, and he also justifies his right to intervene in the debate. 
Okay, he's young, but he knows a few things, and he wants to share them. And then when he, he acknowledges that Job's three friends had failed to prove him wrong. <clears throat> in other words, for all their speaking, they didn't accomplish anything. We knew that already. But therefore, I say in verse 10, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning. While you searched for words, I gave you my full attention. <clears throat> but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom. Let God refute him, not man. But Job has not marshaled his words against me. And I will not answer him with your arguments. Now, in Elihu's argument, you see the, the difference between an older man and a younger man. And this is just true. As we get older, we mellow, generally. I wish that were true of everyone, right? But generally, I've certainly seen this in my life. When we're young, we tend to be a little hotter, you know, in our arguments. we a little bit more zealous in our beliefs, less inclined to compromise. Um, and when someone's zealous and a little young and they tend to get angry, they, they tend not... They tend not to be very mellow. In fact, they tend to be very zealous and passionate about what they believe. And you see that Elihu is very passionate and unwilling to let all of Job's arguments go unanswered. And and he says that. He speaks in that way. And uh, in those verses that we just read, he simply acknowledges Job's friends, they failed to prove Job wrong, as if that was the goal. Prove Job wrong. Because in proving Job wrong, their idea was you would prove God right. Are you with me? Does, does one or the other have to be true? Can Job be right and God also be just? Because I think that's the real crux of the matter. I mean, can Job be right about his complaints and his suffering and God still be just in allowing it? Because ultimately, I think that's the truth. That God is just no matter what. But you can be right in complaining about how things are going in your life. Not necessarily cursing God or blaming God, but being honest about your suffering. And I really think for the most part, that is exactly what Job has done. <clears throat> now he's anxious, this man Elihu, and he's determined to enter the debate and plans to prove Job wrong and says so in verses 15 through 22. He says, they are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. But must I wait now that they are silent? Now that they stand there with no reply, I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. So this very passionate plea on the part of Elihu to, to speak and say exactly how he feels. And remember, this first speech that we're looking at addresses the purpose of affliction. This is sort of the introduction to that. But he can hardly contain himself as he sat and listened to all of these arguments. He can hardly contain himself for his desire to speak. And one of the things he mentions right at the end there in verses 21 through 22, he says if we flatter men... Our actions are despised by God. If we flatter men, our actions are despised by God. Look at verses 21 through 22. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. For if I were skilled in flattery, which, by the way, is is, is deception. Let's be honest. Flattery is saying things to manipulate a person. 
ultimately. It's what it is. It's not complimenting someone. It's buttering somebody up. You know, if you walk into a car dealership and someone tells you how nice you look, or you're looking at a car and they say, you have good taste, do you believe them? Because I don't. I remember there was this, now I'm going to go back to the 80s, okay? So some of you get in a DeLorean with me, and we're going to go back to the 80s for a minute. But I remember going to a store in the Willowbrook Mall, and uh, they used to sell parachute pants. You guys, I don't know if you remember those. Some of you are not old enough. But all of this, these clothes that we wore in the 80s, and especially if you were in a band, right? You wore these things. And anyway, that was the way it was. And as soon as you walked in the store, the saleswoman would, sales girl really, would come out and compliment you. First thing she would do is, oh, you have the cutest chin. Or, oh, I, I really like, you know, your eyes. And I, I, I noticed a trend here. No matter what you look like, she found something to compliment. Gee, I wonder why. Flattery has that effect on people, and we're all susceptible to it, let's be honest. And this man, Elihu, understands that it really is manipulation. Let's apply it across the board. Anytime we say anything that's designed to manipulate a person to do what we want for our enrichment or betterment, we're really doing something that's displeasing to God. Now, some of you may be in sales. It's very hard to be in sales as a Christian and not violate some of these principles. People who are good at sales can get around these things and not have to violate their conscience. But I've known salespeople that have a really good product. They believe in the product. They sell the product. They don't sell to the person. That is, they don't butter the person up. They don't flatter them to get them to buy their product. So if you're in sales and you don't believe in your product, you might want to find a different company to work for. Because honestly, I mean, how are you going to honest to goodnessly like sell a product to someone without manipulating them if you don't believe in the product? So I think that's a good point he makes, and I, I pointed that out because I think we can all apply that to our lives. Be careful how you speak to someone. Just test your motives. Evaluate your motives. Why am I saying the things I'm saying to this person? Do I want something from them? Do I want them to think better of me? We're all guilty of this at times. You need to test your heart. Okay, now we get to Elihu beginning by correcting Job. He has a few things to say to Job. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 in chapter 33. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. The words, my words, are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Prepare yourself and confront me. I am just like you before God. I too have been taken from clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy upon you. And I find that's interesting because he's not making any threats against Job. I think his friends came down really heavy on him. They had a heavy hand in their speech. Elohu isn't doing that. He wants to have an honest to goodness debate, but he wants Job to see that he shouldn't be questioning or complaining about God. That's really his, his, his focus. So he, he respectfully requests Job's attention in those verses. And then he goes on to question Job's professed integrity and why he felt he needed to complain. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If you know you haven't done anything wrong, and you're suffering greatly, I can understand why, if you were someone like Job, you would do that exact thing. But Elohu's a little bit of an idealist, and he feels that Job should not have done that. So he says in verses 8 through 11, But you have said, In my hearing, 
I have heard the very words, I am pure and without sin. Now, what's interesting about that is I think he may have implied that. He may have, that is, Elohim may have inferred that. But I don't remember Job saying in all things he was pure and without sin. I remember him saying he was blameless and a man of integrity. I see, there's a difference there, and I think that's part of the problem. Job isn't saying, I'm innocent of all sin, I'm, I'm a perfect person, I walk on water. No, no, no. He's saying, I haven't done anything to violate God's word that would cause me to suffer the way I'm suffering. So in a sense, I think Elohu is making a little bit of a leap here. But he said, I have heard the very words, I am pure and without sin, I am clean and free from guilt. Now, that he had said, he was clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. Now, of course, Job had said those things. He fastens my feet in shackles, and he keeps close watch on all my paths. So part of the issue is Elihu believes that Job is saying, I'm pure and innocent, and God is unjust. But what Job has actually said, I'm blameless, and I don't understand why God is allowing me or causing me to suffer. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. So in those verses, we see that Job's professed integrity and his complaints are being questioned by Elihu. And then Elihu disagrees with Job that God hasn't been speaking to him. One of the things that Job has said repeatedly over and over again, that God is silent. He's not responding to his prayers. He wishes that he could have an audience with God. He wants God to respond. And what Elihu is essentially going to say is God has responded. God has been speaking to you. Look at verse 12. But I tell you in this, you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones once hidden now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to the messengers of death. So what Elihu is saying is that Job's perception is flawed. God is speaking through his circumstances. And in that regard, there may be some truth. God is speaking through your circumstances at all times. He said that Job's perception was flawed and that suffering is sometimes corrective. And we know that's true. So he believes God speaks through dreams and God also speaks through suffering. And by dreams, he means terrors, night terrors, nightmares. And the reason that God would do this, that speak through terrifying dreams to Job, is to make him sober and keep him on the straight and narrow, to keep him upright before God. And that even the suffering, his great suffering, was God speaking to him. And if for no other reason than to humble him and keep him from pride, it's still God speaking. Some of this is true, and some of it may be wrongly applied, But Elihu is certainly closer to the mark than Job's three friends. And then he encourages Job to repent and be restored. And so there again, you have this idea that you need to repent. And as it relates to Job, 
Elihu is suggesting that Job is proud. More than anything else, he's proud and not trusting God. And actually somewhat rebellious because he opens up his mouth. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what Elihu believes. So he encourages Job to repent and be restored in verse 23. Yet, if there is an angel on his side, as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit or the grave, I have found a ransom for him, then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. And then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. A lot of what he's saying here is very true. I think we've experienced this in our lives, and our mediator is Jesus Christ. As it relates, though, to Job, this man Elihu is seeking to be that mediator. He's stepping up, and when he says, if there is an angel or a messenger on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, he's suggesting that he is that mediator to correct Job so that Job can be humbled before God, accept God's will, and be restored. That's the message that Elihu is communicating. And there is, of course, only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And when he is your mediator, then all of the things we learn about here are true. He spares us from going down to the pit. He, he paid the ransom for us. And so all of the blessings that we see described there come to us because our souls have been redeemed from the grave and that we've been restored to a relationship with God and will receive a resurrected body because we repent of our sins truth misapplied to Job's circumstances. And a little bold in suggesting that he could be the mediator to help Job to get there. But anyway, also, he promises all of the physical and spiritual restoration for Job should he finally repent. And I don't know that that's necessarily true because I've known people in great suffering and maybe their suffering was even because of their sin And just repenting doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the consequences and all the difficulty that they've experienced suddenly goes away because, oh, now they've repented. It's like that idea of a criminal comes to Christ and now all of a sudden, oh, but he's a new creature. We should, you know, forget about all that. That's all in the past now. It doesn't work that way. And I think in that regard, Elihu is a little idealistic. But Elihu foresees Job becoming a vessel of God's redemption and grace. And that's a good and encouraging message. Far more encouraging, I think, than Job's three friends. He also believes that Job's trials only prove that God is graciously speaking to him. You see, I think you have to look at it this way. If you're going through a difficult time and God is speaking to you in your trials, then you know God is real. If you were to go through a difficult time and maybe you didn't have a relationship with God and things are just happening to you left and right, and there seems to be no plan or purpose as to why, I can understand you coming to the conclusion, is God there? Does he even exist? But if you have a relationship with God, I don't know about you, but when I go through trials, God is very real in those trials. It doesn't help me understand why he allowed the trials, but I grow closer to God in the trials. And I think that's part of what Elihu is trying to communicate here. As we read in, uh, let's see where we left off, in verse 29. 
God does all these things to a man. Twice. Even three times. To turn back his soul from the pit. That the light of life may shine on him. In those two verses, Elihu feels God has made himself clear. He's actually working in your life. Easy to say, Elihu didn't have his body covered with boils. Elihu didn't lose all that he had and his children. Elihu wasn't suffering. I think sometimes the advice that certain ministry leaders and pastors and counselors give They don't always think it through. They don't always think that, you know, this person is suffering. Where's the compassion? Where's the empathy? It's very easy to open up your mouth and share with someone what you think, which is what Elihu is doing. It's a lot harder to take a step back and just comfort someone. Sometimes hugging someone and just saying, I'm so sorry, is enough. You know, sometimes that's more than enough. He goes on to say, pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want you to be cleared. So his intentions are good. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. And so you see that passion and that zeal respectfully requesting Job to receive his instruction. And so this is all about, this first speech that we've just looked at, is all about God's purpose in affliction. And I think we can agree God does have a purpose in affliction. The second speech, which is chapter 34. The second speech is all about vindicating God, defending God. And so he's going to speak to Job about the fact that you shouldn't, you shouldn't call God's work into question. And so he justifies what God has done. And so, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 34. Then Elihu said, Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning. For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right, and let us learn together what is good. I like that phrase there, right? The ear tests words, like the tongue tastes food. So if you want to know whether the food is good, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? You taste it. Oh, is the food good? Well, I don't know. I haven't tasted it. I taste it. I know whether it's good or not, right? But the ear tests words in the same way. So you really can't evaluate what someone thinks until they open their mouths and speak their thoughts. So that's what uh, Elihu is suggesting here. Respectfully requesting, Job, just listen. And then he summarizes Job's defense and criticizes his position. So sometimes when you're in a debate, you restate the person's position. And that's what he does. He restates his position, Job's position, and then criticizes him. Okay? Job says, I am innocent. But God denies me justice. Although I am right and I am considered a liar. And although I am guiltless, his arrows inflict incurable wound. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with wicked men. (coughs) For he says, excuse me, for he says, it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. I think there's some word twisting there. I really do. I don't think Elihu is being entirely fair. Some of what he says is true. Sometimes truth, when it's just off by a little, is more dangerous than anything else. 
that is close enough to the truth that it can be very deceptive. In fact, I think Satan does that a lot. He gives us a a truth that's just skewed enough to almost be believable. He twists it just enough to deceive us. And in some regards, I think Elihu's close, but not quite there. Anyway, so that's his opinion of Job's defense and his position. And then Elihu refuses to find fault with God for Job's suffering. He's going to say, look, you've been blaming God. And we know that it's not God, it's Satan, but we also know that God allowed Satan. So what we do know, what Elihu says, you can't find fault with God for suffering. I think that's true. I really do. Here's what he says in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 34. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? That's a rhetorical question. No one did. He is, because he's God. If it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together, and man would return to the dust. I agree with that. God is the creator, but he's also the sustainer of the universe. It says in Colossians that by him all things hold together, or consist. So it's as if God created all things, and he still sustains it. At a certain point, when the the world is, is completely, when the universe is completely destroyed and remade. All he has to do is let it go. It's not as if he has to even do anything. He just lets it no longer be held together by his power. That says a lot. In that regard, I agree uh, that God is just in all his dealings with men, that God is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. He also refuses to find fault with God's perfect justice, not just with God's suffering that he's allowed in Job's life, but with his perfect justice. God is always just, and we know this. This is true, even though many times it doesn't seem that way. Look at verses 16 through 20. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can he who hates justice govern? I just want to stop there for a minute. That is a truth. Can he who hates justice govern? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. If a governor or senator or president or congressman or mayor or anyone, for that matter, who's in a position of authority in government hates justice or a DA that seems to let criminals out on the street because of whatever, maybe their ethnic background, maybe their skin color, maybe their economic background, whatever it is, you know? That justice doesn't look at that. I mean, if you've ever seen a picture of justice, she's got the scales, right? Lady Justice, she has the scales, and she has a blindfold. She's not supposed to look at the situation and show partiality. But today we have those in government that do that exact thing. So if you hate justice, which is what you would be doing in that case, can you govern? I would say that if someone hates justice, they shouldn't be in a position of government. That's, that's the point. Let's read again. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Can he who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and the mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor? 
for they are all the work of his hands. They die in an instant. In the middle of the night, the people are shaken. They pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. So again, he has a correct understanding of who God is, clearly. You see, you can't find fault with suffering in this world, although many people do. Oh, if there was a God of love, there wouldn't be suffering in this world. You can't do that. That's not our correct way of thinking. Also, you can't find fault with God's perfect justice. You can't, because God is just, amen? He's also merciful and compassionate, but he is just. He also, that is Elihu, refuses to question God's ability to properly judge mankind. He understands that God doesn't need us to tell him, that is, God doesn't need us to tell him how he should judge. But don't we do that? I know I do it all the time. Oh, God, strike this person dead. They're so wicked. The things they support, the things that they promote, the things that they do. Oh, Lord, where's your justice? Many times we do that. And yet the truth is, we really shouldn't question God's ability to properly judge mankind. Look at verses 21 through 30. Elihu says this, his eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. There is no dark place, no deep shadow where evildoers can hide. And of course, that's true. God has no need to examine men further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness, where everyone can see them, because they turned from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him, so that he heard the cry of the needy. But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can, who can see him? Yet he is over man and nation alike, to keep a godless man from ruling from laying snares for the people. So, again, you really can't question God's ability to properly judge mankind. First of all, one of the things you'll note if you watch any of those, like Law and Order, or, any, or one of those shows, one of those crime shows or court shows, those legal dramas, you, know, you learn that you know, the police, they investigate the crime, right? And then you have the prosecutors that, you know, they go to court, you know, everyone has a job in the process, but God doesn't need any of that. God does not need anyone to investigate a man's deeds. There needs to be no trial or hearing. He knows all things. And God requires no one to enforce judgment. He doesn't need a judge to do the sentencing. And God cannot be held in contempt for not responding to an appeal. Sometimes we look at the judges and we say, well, we're appealing the case because we feel it's unjust. And then the judge says, no, I won't accept an appeal. But God doesn't need any of that. There is no appellate system in God's judgment. There is no investigators in God's judgment, in God's justice. And no one needs to be employed to enforce that judgment or make a sentence because God is capable of judging properly all mankind. Amen? Now, in verses 31 through 33, Elihu encourages Job to plead guilty. So if he were his attorney, he'd say, you need to plead guilty. Rather than to justify yourself before God, just plead guilty. God is correct, therefore you must be incorrect. God is just, therefore you must be unjust. Again, it's a little black and white, but still, that's his way of thinking. So in verse 31, we read, Suppose a man says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. 
Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I, so tell me what you know. He's challenging Job. He's basically saying, you know, why don't you start by confessing that you've done wrong and trusting that God is judging you appropriately? That was very hard for Job because he knew he hadn't done anything wrong, and indeed he hadn't. And finally, Elihu accuses Job of ignorance and rebellion against God's justice. So Elihu's all about justice. He's all about God's justice. And so he says in verse 34, Men of understanding declare, Wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. And so, that's not very encouraging, but a lot of what Elihu had to say was, it was true. Job had, I think, taken some liberty with his complaints, justifying his own integrity, really at the expense of God's wisdom. He questioned God's wisdom at times in his judgment. I, I understand why, because it doesn't make sense. But see, there's a lesson there. When God doesn't make sense, that's when you have to trust God anyway. And isn't that difficult? See, I don't understand why a lot of things are happening in our world today. I don't understand. There was a line there that talked about godless leaders. I don't understand why we're allowed to have godless leaders in this nation, but we do. Why are there godless leaders in the world? At a certain point, you have to accept God's in control of all things. Again, easier to be said if you're not covered in boils and you haven't lost everything. But just the same, God can be trusted. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your encouragement. We know that you're just. We do. You're also merciful, though. And Lord, we know that when we go through difficult times, you work through those difficult times to, yes, make us more like you and bring us closer to you, but you also work in a way where you receive the glory in and through our lives. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to know what we know to be true, which is that you are always in control. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.